This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of January 23rd, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. David Becker is considered one of the godfathers of the Indiana technology ecosystem, having started and sold several tech firms over the past four decades. But he's probably best known for his current effort, which broke new ground in an entire tech sector. In 1999, he launched First Internet Bank of Indiana, an online-only bank that offered typical bank services without needing to maintain any physical branches. It largely was uncharted territory in the 1990s, and its growth has only accelerated as the major names in banking have jumped in with online products and services. Becker's involvement in banking surprised even his family, given that he's something of an iconoclast with a very down-to-earth personality. Perhaps his biggest business hero was his grandfather, a cattle rancher in North Dakota, In the interview for today's podcast, Becker referenced the neo-Western TV series Yellowstone at least twice. He's not a button-down banker, and he went into the business with a lot of skepticism about traditional financial institutions. First Internet recently passed $4 billion in assets. It's the 17th largest bank in the Indianapolis area, with nearly $700 million in local deposits, although we should note that, almost by definition, First Internet Bank operates on a national scale. Becker is now 69 years old and says he has no plans to hand over the reins as CEO and chairman, given that developing new products and services for the bank scratches his entrepreneurial itch. In this week's edition of the IBJ podcast, we have a wide-ranging conversation, jumping from his motorcycle trip bucket list to what he's done to make the bank's new headquarters and fishers attractive to employees while the corporate world wrangles with the trend of working from home. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, David Becker, chairman and CEO of First Internet Bank of Indiana. Thank you for making time today. Uh, Mason, thank you. Uh, Here is my first burning question. You are... I don't know if it's correct to say, sad to say, but you're 69 years old. Do you still ride a motorcycle? I do. I do. In fact, uh, a buddy of mine from college, we're planning a trip this summer. We're going to try and travel what's left of Route 66 all the way to Los Angeles. I had planned to do that trip when I graduated college before I was going to go to law school. Obviously, a lot of things changed. That never happened. So uh, I'm going to try and make it happen this summer. Should we call that a bucket list trip? It's a bucket list trip, no question about it. Yes. What do you uh, What do you drive? What is your cycle? I had a bad accident several years ago, so I'm now on a Harley Davidson three wheeler. I call it my uh, adult tricycle, uh, <laughs> but it's a phenomenal bike. They've got the Screaming Eagle engine. It's got a lot of power, a lot of zip. It's very comfortable. It's got heated seats, heated hand grips. It's like driving a three wheel Cadillac. So it's uh, for an older guy. It's a, a great mode of transportation. And you, have you come to, to terms with going from the two-wheeler to the three-wheeler? Yeah, it, it, I, I swore if I ever went to a three-wheeler, I would uh, give up motorcycling. But uh, it, once I tried it, it, it really is it, fun. And you still got the, the wind blowing in your face at 70 miles an hour and the uh, smells and the odors of the open countryside. So um, 
outside of a little ego uh, issue, it uh, works out great. The, you, your accident, I think, was in 2006. Is that right? That's correct. That's and, correct. And that was, the, that was a pretty severe accident. Yeah, I was. I uh, tried to uh, kind of shattered everything in my left leg just above the ankle. And uh, they airlifted me off the uh, mountain to University of Tennessee Hospital in Knoxville. About $60,000 to put me back together, about $5,000 to fix the motorcycle. So <laughs> motorcycle won, I lost. There you go. You're back to uh, pretty much you know, physically operating at normal parameters. Yeah, it was a little over a year in recovery. I was in uh, bedridden for a month, wheelchair for 90 days, crutches for another six months. So it took a long time to recover. But today, I like no ill effects. Every now and then, I'll shut off. Uh, I've got still a couple pieces of metal and about 30 screws in my left leg. I'll set off the alarm at the airport. But outside of that, that's the only nuisance factor today. What did, what did you learn? You say you were in bed for about a year or so. What did you learn? Because you have a you know, a business that you're trying to grow on the side. I mean, that you were probably seven years or so in already. I mean, was there any kind of uh, lesson that you took from that? Well, the thing I learned very early on was not to send any emails or have serious conversation when I was on the pain meds. Uh, <laughs> that was lesson number one. Uh, lesson number two, actually, while I was off recovering, everybody thought I was doing nothing. I literally, I bought two companies while I was recovering. Uh, Landmark Savings Bank, we struck the deal about acquiring them uh, here in Indianapolis. And then I bought a software firm in Des Moines, Iowa, that was a POS system. So yeah, even being bedridden, it couldn't stop me from doing deals and uh, working the business. Uh, since I started my first company at the age of 27, I've been on for 24-7, I think, every since. So. Yeah. You said in previous interviews, one of the most influential people in your life was your grandfather, who was a cattle rancher, I believe. Is that right? In North Dakota? Correct. Correct. And uh, he, I think he had a seventh grade education, but you said he was one of the most successful businessmen that you ever met. Yeah, my grandfather could literally do about any, anything. He and his wife in a Model A pickup truck with two cows in the back headed to uh, North Dakota in the early 1900s, homesteaded two sections of land. His Ted's last roundup, he had a big five foot wide uh, picture in, in the living room with 800 head of cattle that they literally took cross country uh, over the down to the Kansas City uh, markets. Wow. And uh, it was the cowboy and the chuck wagon and that whole routine. It was living, uh, breathing Yellowstone. So he left there, maintained the mineral rights to that land, uh, which paid off with time. My father, my aunt and uncles, uh, made several thousand dollars from the oil rights on that land, defended it in court himself. He drew up the document, had the new owner sue him. He went to court, defended himself, won the suit, came back to Wisconsin where they had first started, opened a uh, chicken uh, hatchery, laying eggs, and uh, actually developed his own feed for the chickens. And the quality of the eggs are so good that the top restaurants in Chicago used to send trucks up three days a week to pick up eggs from his farm in Sheboygan, uh, Wisconsin. So he's, it was kind of one of those things he could, he could figure out. He's very mechanically inclined, very business inclined. He was buying old homes uh, uh, in the Sheboygan, Milwaukee area that would go to tax sale, pick them up, go through the attics, find all kinds of goodies and stuff left behind. And uh, he's just he had phenomenal work ethic. And I think 
truly there was nothing that he couldn't do if he put his mind to it. I think you've said that his most impactful advice for you was don't fear failure. However bad it gets, they can't eat you. Did that turn out to be true? Oh, many, many times. Let me tell you, I've, I've, I've thought they've taken a number of chunks out of me, but ultimately uh, over the last 40 years, I, as he said, I, I can't survive and bounce back. No matter what happens to you, they can't eat you and, and you can always uh, turn the table. So, yeah, I mean, I mean like any company and, and any entrepreneur in particular, uh, there's good times and there's bad times. And it's been tough at points over the years, but that statement he made me, I can still hear him. Uh, telling me that when I was thinking about starting my first company. And his, uh, his other piece of advice back at that point, he said, ah, you're young enough. If the first one doesn't work, you can file bankruptcy and do it all over again. So don't worry about it. So, <laughs> yeah. Technically, RDF survived and we did great. But uh, yeah, yeah, there's been times that I felt like they're taking chunks out of me. Uh, how much of your grandfather do you think is in you? Oh, I think a ton. In part, part of it, just the work ethic. <laughs> made the statement a few times. It cost me a couple marriages early on. My uh, ex-wife uh, felt I was married to the company and didn't take time for the them and the children and whatever. And uh, Christy and I have been together uh, most 26 years now, and I guess dated three or four years before that. So I ultimately learned that kind of work-life balance, but uh, it was a little tough in the beginning, 80, 100 hours a week, and just did whatever it took to get the job done. It was tough, yeah. Um, as I said before the uh, before we started the interview, I'm probably the last guy at the IBJ who should be interviewing somebody about banking. Uh, this is not a beat that I have covered, but uh, as you have said, it could be okay because I understand that when you were launching First Internet Bank, you were approaching it really from the mindset of a technologist and an entrepreneur, not a financial guy. And in fact, it probably is fair to say that you found banks to be annoying. Is that correct? Uh, at best, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you think that that was a good thing at the time to, uh, to have that that mindset heading into creating an internet bank? I think in the creating the internet bank, it was it was great uh, from a regulatory perspective. If you remember, we launched in 1999, actually in February of 99, and everybody was scared to death of Y2K. Yeah. Uh, the world was going to fall apart. Computers were going to quit working. Cars would stop in the middle of the highway, yada, yada. So from the regulatory perspective, they were very uh, gun shy about why in the world is somebody from technology that has no banking experience wanting to start a bank right when we might be in a, a tech crisis. So scared the FDIC to death. I think they figured I was going to get some magic amount of deposits, hit a button, head to the island and leave them holding the bag. But for the success of the bank, because we, we launched in 1999, we were the second and, and the very first pure play internet that started from the ground up. That bank got ahead of us by a few months, but he bought a thrift and converted it while I was going through the charter process. And we came out guns blazing. I mean, we, we just rocked from the day we opened the virtual doors, the business really took off. And I think the fact that I wasn't of the banking mindset enabled us to do some things very effectively, very quickly. Uh, 50 to 60 other banks probably followed us in the four to five years post. Today, there's like three or four of us that still survive. So I think the fact that I didn't come in with that banking blinders and mindset actually helped uh, the success of the bank because we, 
one of the mantras that we've had here from day one is do what, what's right for the customer. The customer is always first. Traditionally, most banks will do right what's right for the bank, and the customer is secondary. You know, service fees, charges, and stuff that we've never had, they are finally waking up and, you know, dropping some of the service charges uh, today, 20 years later, things that we we never had to begin with and never lived off service charges. We didn't live off the back of our customers like they have for decades. Wait a second. So you're saying that today there are just three or four internet-only banks yeah. in the yeah. United States or internationally? Uh, yeah, worldwide, there might be another three or four. There's a couple in England, I think one or two, uh, potentially in Europe. Virtually every bank in, in the world has some kind of internet presence today. Right. Back in 1999, uh, the big banks, we actually, there was a group called Gomez, a consulting group out of Boston that rated online uh, services for the retail and financial industry. Uh, we were rated ahead of Wells, City. JP Morgan, all the big banks because of the feature functionality we had in our software. As we were launching the bank, I used the story of I wanted to go to a Colts game and it was Sunday uh, afternoon and I had no cash. I could pull out my flip phone, uh, transfer funds from my, or they could advance on my Visa card, put it into my checking account and pull the money out of the ATM walking into the arena. Nobody else, regardless of size and tech, uh, no other bank can do that in, in the United States in 1999. So we were ahead of the game, uh, very self-service oriented. We focused on trying to keep the website very simple, very easy to use. Uh, within three clicks, you should be able to get to exactly what you're looking for, three clicks or less. So again, the focus of putting the customer first and, and uh, doing what's right. So that enabled us to weather a lot of storms. We survived the dot-com bubble and bust. We uh, survived the 07, 08 recession. We're uh, surviving uh, unprecedented Fed increases today. So uh, we stayed very nimble and, and very flexible and uh, with minimal overhead. Uh, we just have the one facility really here in Fishers a uh, couple of small uh, loan production offices and uh, one in Phoenix and one in Chicago, but we've never had the brick and mortar and uh, all the overhead to deal with. So made us very resilient to pretty much whatever the economy or the regulators have thrown at us over the last 20 years. So when I go on online and I type in online banking, right, I get all kinds of results. And yeah, as, as you say, I mean, every bank I've ever heard of has online options now, but the, the difference is that is this you are online only. Correct. So the advantage that you are applying there is what? The advantage is the fact that we've been online only from the very beginning. And it really it came into focus for a lot of people all over the United States during COVID. All of a sudden, branch infrastructure was shut down. My peers were scrambling. How do they protect their employees? How do they service their customers? They don't have branch. They don't have face-to-face -face activity. And their websites were okay. Some had, it was kind of informational. They would tell you when the branches opened, when they closed, where the ATMs were, and you could see your balances. Uh, you wanted to move money, you might be able to move from a checking to savings, but that was about it. So they weren't really full function. And as I say, in our world, you've had real-time access to your credit cards, your debit cards, your ATM account balances. You can move money anywhere in the world 24-7. 
So it was business as usual for us all the way through COVID. And the consumers learned that, hey, my I, one, I don't need the branch on the corner because I lived two years without having that. And they started looking at what the online service was. And they, they had problems that we don't have. And without that infrastructure of branch and, and people, if I take away the SBA and mortgage business, we're literally running a $4.3 billion bank with about 150 employees. So it is phenomenally low overhead. The trade-off is I'm giving uh, the average consumer 3.3% on a money market account. I have no fees, no charges, transaction charges. In fact, if they use somebody else's ATM, I'll rebate the fee they pay to use that ATM. So we have phenomenally low cost and high interest on the savings program and low interest that our credit card is 12%. So uh, we pass all of that savings back to the consumer. And it literally is your bank to do what you want with. You want to buy a CD at 1 a.m. in the morning. You click two buttons, you transfer it from your checking account and you've opened a CD. So the ultimate convenience to the consumer. Yeah. I, I had to do my due diligence. I'd go online, the first internet bank of Indiana, just to see what you offer. Because like I said, I don't understand banks very well. So I can get a checking account and the savings account just as a street level consumer. I get a money market account. I could buy CDs. Did I see that? I could also open a health savings account. Yes, you could do a health savings account. You can do a credit card. You can get a line of credit. You can get an overdraft line for your checking account. Um, you can buy autos, uh, finance autos, homes, uh, literally anything you can do at a traditional bank you can do through our world in an online environment. Right. The SBA loans, uh, home loans, yep. I can refinance my mortgage. Uh, it's a pretty full suite of, of products and services. Exactly. Exactly. The only thing you can't get from the online institution is coin and currency. Now, you didn't offer all of these products and services at the beginning. Can you give me an overview of how you added to the portfolio of products and services over the last 24 years? Sure thing. When we launched, we were really just a consumer organization. We did the checking savings, credit cards, et cetera. Uh, nothing on the commercial side and somewhat limited on the, the loan capabilities for the consumer. Uh, in 07, well, as a de novo institution, the regulators keep traditional de novo banks in 8% tier one capital ratio. All that means is that kind of limits your growth and your activities until they're convinced that you're in good operational stead and, and they're not worried about you uh, hitting the insurance fund. They held us to a 14% tier one capital ratio because they really didn't understand the model and they kept that on us for eight years. So uh, they didn't kind of take the handcuffs on uh, off of us until 2008. And at that point in time, that's when, 2007, 2008, that's when the mortgage market was imploding. That's when we bought Landmark Savings Bank, the, the deal I struck while I was recovering from the motorcycle accident. Got into consumer mortgage within a year. We had we were making loans in all 50 states across the U.S. And then as other verticals got into trouble, uh, commercial real estate, CNI lending, single tenant leasing, uh, we developed programs, hired good talent here from the Indianapolis marketplace and evolved. And we tried it pretty much anything that we do. We tried to do it with the idea it's going to be a national footprint. Uh, one of the latest verticals we've opened up about three and a half years ago, we bought a SBA a book of business from a bank in Colorado. 
who happened to have an SBA office in Chicago. Uh, we brought in about 60 million in assets. We finished last September as the in the top 25 uh, banks originating SBA loans in the country. First quarter, we just got the results a couple of days ago. We've moved into the top 15. Uh, we'll probably originate over 200 million in SBA loans this year for small businesses all across the United States. So, yeah, the, the play here is we <laughs> another mantra, and it's actually on the, on the wall in our uh, boardroom, is the only constant around here is change. And uh, that's the way we've lived for 20-plus years. And I guess it's kind of the entrepreneurial spirit uh, within myself. It's, you know, if it's not broken, let's break it and try something different and let's look for a new opportunity. And right now, as a lot of folks are worried about the recession and things that might be coming, uh, on our side, it's kind of all guns blazing again. We're out looking for opportunities. To me, when it's time of greatest crisis, it's also the time of greatest opportunity. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IPJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IPJ Podcast and our interview with internet banking pioneer, David Becker. So you mentioned you started your entrepreneurial life in your late 20s. Is is starting new lines of business for the bank, does that help kind of satisfy your bug for entrepreneurial action? Yeah, without question. Uh, in, in the olden days, if a developer sold one company, I'd start two more. Uh, here, we'll go out and start a new division and a new program. So that gives me the fun of creating something, building it up, and taking it to a national marketplace. So, yeah, that kind of fuels the uh, entrepreneurial juices for me, and I think also keeps the company uh, moving it and jumping because we we've had people that you know, started in commercial real estate. Now they're in SBA or they're doing all these different things and getting exposed to a lot of different opportunities instead of traditional banking where you might be in the same career path for 30 years. Mm. Uh, here you can do a lot of different things and have a lot of fun doing it. Um, you mentioned assets a few minutes ago. I gather assets is one way to think measure the size of a bank. First internet bank, I think most recently I saw was at 4.4, 4.3 billion in assets. Correct. And here's the dumbest question I'm going to ask today. What do we mean by assets? Our assets for a bank? You have assets and liabilities. The asset side of the balance sheet is the physical deposits of the customers, the cash, and what we've done with that cash in the form of still some in cash, it's in security, it's in loans to both consumers and commercial accounts, and then the physical assets that the bank owns. The liability side of the bank would be any payables, the actual deposits that the customers have made, and then the uh, equity of the bank. So those two uh, balance out over time. And we we hit $1 billion in 2017. So it took us 18 years to get to $1 billion, and we're setting at roughly $4.5 billion today. We purposefully slowed down growth going into COVID to boost earnings and, and uh, 
do a little work on some software in place. So uh, mm-hmm. it worked phenomenally well for us. We, uh, while the rest of the world was worried about survival, we were able to kind of leapfrog again and create some of the banking as a service tools and some of the new things that we're doing uh, while the rest of the world was in survival mode. What generates the most revenue for the bank? Oh, by far. And again, the loan portfolio is the, the greatest revenue. Kind of tough for the consumers today and, and businesses for that matter. But as the uh, Fed has bumped interest rates, uh, we SBA, a lot of loans are classified as variable rate. And as the rates go up, the uh, fee income goes up or the, the interest on the loan. So uh, that's by far the biggest uh, earnings generator for the bank. Yeah, I was going to ask about the Fed. Obviously, it's persistently increasing interest rates, hopefully tame inflation. How has that, or I guess the last year, how's that affected the business? Well, I, I, <laughs> I've kidded for 20 years with the regulators when they come in and do their annual exam and they wanted to do 400 basis point interest rate shocks. And I said, my God, that's never going to happen. And lo and behold, it did happen here in the last six months. The, the Fed took off with a vengeance and they were kind of late to the game and they made up a lot of territory in a very short period of time. And uh, it has put a squeeze on the bank, though. If hands are butts about it, still very profitable, operating very well. But our, it's it's kind of the ocean liner story. As the Fed bumps uh, the interest rate, we pay that through to the consumer. For example, a year ago, a five-year CD you were going to get uh, for about 90 basis points. Today, if you have a million dollars in a money market account, you're getting 425. So it's gone up geometrically. On the other side, even though we have some adjustable rate loans, a lot of loans are fixed, so that's changing. It's that battleship kind of turning a little bit at a time, so the rates are catching up on the other side. So it's squeezing margins a little bit for the time being, but outside of that, uh, knock on wood, we're not, uh, as most banks, not seeing any real deterioration in the quality of the assets and the consumer's ability or the business ability to repay. So hopefully outside of a you know 18-month squeeze here, if the Fed stops, raising rates, we write the ship in about six months and we're uh, back on top. If they start to drop rates, uh, we'll recover in you know 90 to 120 days. So uh, back to where we were. It's, okay. uh, it's a squeeze. It's faster than it, it's happened in the 40-year history. Of, uh, uh, so, Tell me, if I've got the timing right here. Was it early 2022? First Internet opened the new company headquarters in downtown Fishers, is that right? Or was that late 2021? Uh, no, it, we built it during the COVID crisis, which scared me to death that uh, we have this gorgeous new headquarters and nobody's going to come in here to work. We're going to have uh, uh, bowling alleys and, and uh, stuff in the hallways. Uh, we actually got in here just uh, like December 15th, December 16th in uh, 2021 because our old building had been sold and we had a big penalty we were staring at it we went past january 1st so uh, we kind of came in uh, the first month or two we were in here in 22 we had probably more construction workers in the building than we had employees but uh, it worked out okay and uh, i gotta tell you we couldn't have designed the building better had we known a pandemic was coming open space uh, very uh, light friendly a lot of small uh, kind of conference rooms and spaces for folks together uh, get together. A lot of those in open areas. You didn't even get stuffed in a conference room with five people that hack and cough on you for a half hour. So uh, it worked out great. Uh, we did some tremendous amenities in here. 
Uh, we've got a gym. In fact, there's a new apartment complex across the street from us on 116th Street. And, and the young lady that runs her uh, rental desk said, man, I got everybody coming in every day wanting to know, how do I get a membership in the gym across the street? Because we can see it through the windows. Sorry, that's an employee benefit for the first IB team. They, they don't take outside membership. So how many employees of your employees work in the building? We have 330 employees in total, and about 300 of them are here in central Indiana. On any given day, we'll have 225 to 250 people. We have flex time like the rest of the world, three days in, two days out. Uh, But I would tell you, on any given day, we've got 80 to 85% of the employees in here. I think a lot of folks are a little burned out of COVID and home with the spouse and the kids and the dog and stuff all day long, and they enjoy uh, getting back out and... uh, catching up with their friends and their peers at work. Does the bank own the building? Yeah. Yeah. The bank owns the building and we did a partnership with the city on the garage behind it. And I I forgot one other amenity that we have is uh, uh, now called the backyard. We literally took half of the top floor of the parking garage and turned it into a park. There's trees, there's plants, there's grills, there's fire pits, there's cornhole uh, tournaments. So in our old building, we had 12 acres of land. We did a lot of activities outdoors and over the summer months. So uh, here we were kind of landlocked. So uh, we built literally a park on top of the garage, which has been a, a tremendous benefit. Would you prefer to have everybody in all the time? I think there's definitely synergies and great collaboration that happens when the folks are all in here together. But I do understand um and again, I'm the guy that worked, you know, 100 hours a week in, in the early stages of the businesses. Uh, I do understand there's a work-life balance and, and people do have things to do out, outside of work. And I think all in all, having that flexibility, uh, as I say, 80 percent plus of the people are probably in here uh, at some point on, on almost uh, all five days out of the week. But uh, having that flexibility, I think, takes pressure off them. You got to run an errand in the afternoon. Just go do it. Get it done. And uh, it, it's worked out really, really well. But I, I do love it. You know, there's so many things happen by conversations you hear in a hallway or you're in a meeting and you get a sidebar with somebody afterwards. There's just great collaboration and synergy that comes out of having people face to face. Regardless of what they say to me, I don't think you can do it on a Zoom. You just not the same. So- do you recruit nationally or do you, do you primarily focus on Indiana-based candidates? A little bit of both in today's marketplace. Over the last probably 10 to 15 years, the financial sector has not been in the top 10 of careers that folks coming out of college. In fact, it's probably at the very bottom of the list of what any college graduate wants to do. So, And we we recruit at colleges and universities across the state of Indiana. Obviously, college fairs got knocked off during COVID, but they're coming back. Uh, our secret kind of sauce to success of getting good local talent is our internship program. I carried that over from uh, tech world. Uh, we've had 10, 12, up to 20 interns at times over the summer months, and it's a great opportunity for them to see the non-traditional bank, and this really isn't the dodgy kind of Wall Street stuff that everybody complains about. And uh, we can really have a lot of fun here, enjoy it. So we do a lot of recruiting through internships. And even if an individual doesn't necessarily, it's not right for them, they go back and tell their friends and peers. And uh, one of the things we uh, give the interns is an iPad when they come in. 
got all the schedule. It's got all the stuff they're going to do over the summer and everything built in. They take it back to school with them. So they come back and they got a new iPad. Where'd that come from? Well, I got it in my internship. So that uh, moves us up the list for the, the their peers in the next summer. We have obviously recruited from local banks. Our model is a little different. And we've had some traditional bankers that just, they can't understand how we do it, why we're doing it the way we do. And it's just different than what they've dealt with for 25, 30 years. So they move on. But uh, it, we've been very successful recently. We're particularly with the SBA business. Uh, that's on a national footprint. And those folks truly can work from anywhere. And the business development officers, kind of the loan officers, uh, they're scattered all over the United States. We have one locally here and we've got a dozen scattered across the U.S. So, And, and we, we learned during COVID, we did send everybody home. Uh, we probably spent a half a million dollars on laptops and connectivity devices. What we found out is even if we gave them the laptop and the tool to work from home, they didn't have the bandwidth on the uh, systems at home to service both the, the spouse and the kids and uh, couldn't get it done. So uh, we learned a lot during COVID uh, in that first 90 days. And uh, there was obviously concern. We deal with consumer data and we need to protect that to the nth degree. And we now have little devices that set between their computer and the the outside world and telecommunication that encrypts everything. And uh, we can wipe a computer if for some reason somebody breaks into a home and steals it. Uh, We can wipe it as soon as we're notified remotely. So uh, we've got the security pieces in there to allow people literally to to work from anywhere. So it used to be, or I guess still is kind of uh, be that... (laughs) Banks grew geographically. That's my impression. At least they would identify a region where they wanted to operate. They'd open bank branches. They'd hire people for local customer service and loan management. Um, and I assume First Internet Bank of Indiana has really never had to think that way. No, honestly, we haven't. We kind of go where the talent is. Like with Landmark, when we wanted to get into mortgages. We acquired Landmark. SBA is a very heavily regulated industry and we we could have started from scratch but it was much easier to buy a team and buy a team with cni so in in part uh the idea in in some cases of the traditional bankers that we brought on board uh, was to convince them they they could do what they've been doing in marion and surrounding counties on a national footprint tim Dusing joined us in, in doing the municipal lending and we're now in 25 states across the u.s and he worked for city securities for years and barely got outside of the boundaries of the state of Indiana. So uh, it's a little bit of an adjustment and a different mindset, and particularly from some of the credit underwriters. Oh, my God, this business is halfway across the country. How, how do we really know what's going on? Well, you have Google Maps. We have services that will go out and check and validate and kick the tires for us, and uh, it can be done very easily. So I hate to bring this up again, but again, you are uh, you're 69 years old. How long do you anticipate remaining chairman and CEO? Well, this is the one my team said I can't answer the question. So (laughs) they're they're not going to let me retire. They they can't go away. I'm probably one of those guys who's going to die with his boots on. Uh, If you go back to the Yellowstone episode, the guy that was on the last roundup and passed out uh, uh, by the campfire under the tree on the the last roundup of the cattle, uh, I'll probably be, uh, they'll come in on my desk and I'll be uh, uh, reclining in a a rocker and and gone. But uh, uh, no, I, I got to tell you, and I, I, when I talk to uh, particularly students and, and folks or people looking to, to do their own business, that uh, when it becomes a job, uh, it's time to go do something else. And I can truthfully tell you, in 40 years, 
And I've, I've been able to do that in part because I've done a lot of things, started a lot of companies, and I still, it stays very fresh, but I've never had a day that I didn't want to go into work. And I still, it's still that way today. I will tell you, um, <laughs> I uh, uh, was in uh, uh, Florida over the weekend for my mother-in-law's 80th birthday. I got up at 3.30 to catch a flight back to Indianapolis on Monday, worked all day, prepared for the board meeting, walked out of here at 7.30 on Monday night, and I was tired. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. When I was 30 years old, hell, I went to a bar, had a drink, and been back at it the next day. So uh, I do have to pace myself a little bit at times and uh, probably go home and crash at 9 o'clock instead of midnight. But uh, outside of that, I'm having a blast. So no real plans in sight at the current time. I'm, I'm enjoying it. We got a lot of new things we're working on and stuff happening every day. So uh, as long as it's fun, I'm going to be here. My thanks again to David Becker. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest issue of IBJ I want to bring to your attention. First up, Purdue University claimed five of the top 10 gifts last year made by individual donors to Indiana not-for-profits, totaling more than $70 million for the school. John Russell has an exhaustive accounting of Indiana's 54 largest donations and the benefactors in 2022. Also in this week's issue, Mickey Shuey lays out the plans to pour at least $10 million into shoring up the overpasses by downtown's Union Station. And Dave Lindquist explains how former Indiana Fever star Tamika Catchings is growing as an entrepreneur, community leader, and philanthropist. You can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or, of course, online at IBJ.com. I will say it is easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And here's a new development. We have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business. And that works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to IBJ.com and click on that subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week. <clears throat> uh.